Y'all please take a seat. Hey, some folks coming in. We've got some seats scattered kind of down around here. Y'all, we're looking for extra seats. We may need y'all to slide in. All that means is it's daylight savings time, so y'all woke up in time to come. Excited to be with y'all. Hope y'all had a wonderful Halloween. I ate way too much candy late last night. My daughter, Lily, we went walking around. Yeah, no, there's plenty of seats. We went walking around. She's dairy-free, right? My wife, she can't do dairy. My, my son, Trippy, can't do dairy. So here's what that means. All of that is mine. All of that. Should it be? Probably not. Am I going to eat it? Probably so. But I had a great Halloween. I hope you guys did too. I want to start this morning by reading a section of Scripture. It may be familiar to some of you, right? It's a beautiful section of Scripture from the book and the prophet Jeremiah. We're going to read Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7, and it's actually going to set up, it's going to tee where we're going to go for much of our conversation today. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me. If you don't, no problem. It'll be up on the screen. Everyone at home watching online, we're so glad you can see us again. Welcome back. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. A little context here. The nation of Israel was existing in Israel, in Jerusalem. There's a tribe of Judah. Because of their disobedience and foolishness, God allowed them to be conquered by Babylonians. I reference that because God right now, he is writing this letter through the prophet Jeremiah. He is bringing his word to his people in exile. But it matters because right here in verse 4, who takes credit for sending his people into exile? God takes credit. I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. We're going to keep going in verse 5 where God talks to these Jews in exile in the city of Babylon about how to live and conduct their lives. He says to them, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there, and do not decrease. And then here's the key verse, this is the one we're going to unpack today, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. It's this amazing command. Some might call it scandalous, audacious, because here's the thing. Babylonians literally just came and they demolished the welfare of Jews. Destroyed it. They literally, the epicenter of Ju uh, Judaism at the time, the temple, they burned it to the ground. The remnant of these exiles, the elite of the elite of the Jews, are then taken captive and brought to Babylon. And God is writing to them saying, seek the welfare of the city that I just allowed to destroy the welfare of yours. Here's the reason I start with that. It's a funny time for us right now. Like we right now in the midst of an election season, and if you're here with us today, here's exactly what we're talking about. We are talking about the 2020 election. Some of you, as I say that, you're like, finally, I've been waiting like a couple weeks. Where has this been? Others of you are like, I knew we should not have come today. We could have slept in. We could have gone to brunch. There were so many things I would have rather done. Here's the reason we're going to talk about it. 
Actually, this will set it up. Earlier this year, right at the beginning of COVID, I had the privilege, I was sitting down with some other pastors in the community, and I asked them, hey guys, let me ask you, how are y'all going to tackle the election? How are you going to talk about it? How are you going to address it? And there was just two in this moment, so this isn't indicative of a community by any means. But their answer clearly was, we're not. One, I'll never forget what he said. He said, hey, John, everyone in my, he described as a congregation, everyone in my congregation is entitled to their opinion except me. The reason we're going to talk about the 2020 election, that we are going to step into one of those topics, like last week we addressed, topics you're not supposed to talk about in culture, money, sex, religion, and politics, we are going to wade into the treacherous waters because so much of what's going on, God talks about. So much of what is political overlaps with theological or biblical. But here's what you need to hear up front. As we come and we talk about this, there tends to be a mischaracterization, specifically of Christians, right? Where we can get confused. Many of us, like if you grew up going to public school especially, or, or right now, you state at the beginning of the day, I pledge allegiance to the flag, to the United States of America, to the Republic, you, you get it. So many of us come and we think that in the reality of a Christian faith, not only does it pledge itself to God, but it pledges itself to a political party. First thing I'm going to tell you, the kingdom of God is not of the Republican Party. The kingdom of God is not of the Democratic Party. It is the kingdom of God. Jesus is not red. Jesus is not blue. Jesus is not an elephant. Jesus is not a donkey. He is the lion. He is the lamb. And as Christians, we are caught in the reality of a two-party system. That if you're honest, and as we're going to talk about today, and yeah, it's going to get even more sticky, biblically consistent, you're going to find yourself in some complexing decisions. Some of the things that people are talking through, and this is why we have to talk about it, because where it's political, it is biblical, it is theological, it matters for your soul. If you and I, as in a moment we're going to talk about, are going to seek the welfare of the city, it matters how you do that. Wait, but you, you can't vote your morality. You can't legislate morality. All laws are moral laws. Which morality should you choose? How gracious should you be? Questions, and I've talked with a ton of folks, but these might be questions you might be asking. How should I even think about this election? Should I even consider it? What if, honestly, I'm so overwhelmed by all this division, I just don't even care? I think it's toxic. That might be you. Who should I vote for? What if I don't like either candidate, and, and I mean this, local, state, federal. I, I mean all of that. Do I even have to vote? What, what if I just don't really care? And if I am to vote, how should I think about voting? Does my vote even matter? Everyone's going to get upset anyways. What's my responsibility as a follower of Christ? Do Christians only align with one party? What if I disagree? Guys, my hope during the time today is to give you a biblical approach for how you should consider the 2020 election a biblical framework 
for how you and I should think about this. And who am I talking to? I am talking to believers in Jesus Christ. And then more specifically, I am going to plead with you for how why righteousness and seeking the welfare of the city should be reflected in the truth of God's word. But if you're here and you like don't believe in Jesus or you just consider yourself, man, I'm apolitical, I'm atheist, I'm a a lot of things. I hope you'll see I hope you'll understand why Christians do consider politics. Why Christians do, and I'm going to use this word appropriately, care about polity, rightness in a community. That's what we're going to talk about. We're going to break down a biblical approach to the 2020 election. Who's excited? Don't raise your hand. Who wants to leave already? Don't raise your hand. Everyone watching at home, you can just turn off. It's whatever you want to do, but you're going to miss out. Because this is one of those, again, people just won't touch this. Like, they talk about topics. It's like you grab the third rail. We're going to hug the third rail today, church. But at the end of it, we'll chat, we'll talk, we'll, we'll wait up all the line. You can yell at me for not being enough this or enough that. It'll be great. We'll turn pages. But welcome. As we, as we adjust a biblical approach to the 2020 election. We're going to ask two questions specifically. The first question we're going to address, why should Christians care? Should you care? Should you vote? What, what, do you just have to vote? Are there other ways that you should exercise these aspects, these privileges? Second question, how should Christians vote? Ooh. Knowing that is the background for today, I'm going to reread Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7. And it really is a privilege to be with you guys. Verse 7, jumping back into the book of Jeremiah, again, remembering the context. Jeremiah, a prophet of God. God's speaking through him on behalf of his people in exile, in captivity. What that means is these are flourishing believers fighting in the midst of a foreign environment. People who don't believe what they believe. People who don't agree with their morality. People who don't stand where they stand. People who don't worship the God that they love. And he's telling them what to do. There's principles here that apply to us. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. As we develop a biblical approach to the 2020 election, the first question that we are asking, why should Christians care? From this, I want to show you in principle how Christians are to engage politically as a means of seeking the welfare of the city. Now, before we break that down in like modern day implications, right, what, what does it mean? This would have been right around 597 would have happened, but just after that, BC, how do you take those principles then and bring it to 21st century America? But before we break it down and its implications for today, I want to, I want to look at this text. But seek the welfare of the city that I've sent you. Welfare, this word, right, in Hebrew, it's shalom. This is a word that might be common to some of you. It's a blessing. It's a pronouncement of peace, but with peace, something else prosperity. God is calling them to bring shalom to the people who just took seemingly their shalom. The next thing that God describes them as 
he says that they are in the land into exile. They are exiles. They've been carried away into a nation that is not their own. Some of you here, if you're familiar with your New Testament, this is the exact same language that is described of Christians. See, Christians in this world, our citizenship is not of this world. Biblically, and we don't have time to break all this out, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. We're we're considered strangers and aliens in the midst of a dark and perverse generation, like stars that you see popping on a night sky in the midst of a black backdrop. When you consider a 2020 election, you have an exile's mindset. What's the next thing it says? Pray to the Lord on its behalf. I love this. God is literally saying, hey, the people who don't believe in me, pray for them to me. Pray that they would find and know shalom. I once heard a pastor say, and this was 2016, and it was personally really convicting to me. He said, hey, hey, if you complain more about politics or politicians than you pray for politics and politicians, biblically, that's tremendously confusing. I'd ask you in the past month, what have you complained more or have you prayed more? What have you spent more time being an evangelist of? Like the political reality, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying there aren't things at stake. We'll talk about that. But is it citizenship in heaven? It matters. Fourth thing that we see here, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I love this. It's just this principle, it's this promise. The shalom of the individual, the welfare, creates the shalom of the city. The the shalom or the welfare of the city adds to the shalom or the welfare of the individual. It's this beautiful thing where he's saying, hey, you want to seek their peace because it's going to bring your peace. You want to seek your peace. Why? It'll bring their peace. It's a beautiful thought. So what does that mean? How do we seek the welfare? If that's what I understood for them, how do you and I seek the welfare today? There's many ways to do it, but I'm going to put before you this, an undeniable way of doing that in 21st century context, most specifically here in America, an undeniable aspect of that is voting. There's an infinite number of ways, though, you can still seek the welfare. You can be a law-abiding citizen. You can embrace personal responsibility if you have the privilege of marriage. You can have a healthy marriage that creates a healthy family. The top three indicators in America of poverty are this, a child out of wedlock, if that's happened to you, no worries, we love you, God's got your back. A child out of wedlock, getting a GED, and then having children that grow up in an environment of a two-parent family. Now, that's not to create shame if you're a single mom. God can do anything and everything. That's not what I'm talking about. But these are simple ways where you can seek the welfare of the city. You can learn a trade. You can grow an expertise through education and get PhDs so that you can go and contribute to the elevation of others. You should pay your taxes. You should volunteer, serve, give. My personal favorite, I think, I think the world would change. Be a great neighbor. Like if you literally just took... Like, if there's a house here, a house there, a house there, a house there, a house there, like five neighbors, and you're like, all right, those people I'm going to care for. If we did that, that's seeking the welfare. 
Those are some, some examples. That shared. A way to seek the welfare of the city absolutely is to vote. Voting is a privilege that Jeremiah and the Jews did not have, but we do. Voting is a privilege to elect representatives. I intentionally choose that word over politician. Representatives to do what? Represent righteousness. Politico, they had an article that was titled, Half of Americans Don't Vote. What are they thinking? Now, if you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't even hold to like a biblical worldview, right? Because a biblical worldview, a faith in Christ, it's going to compel you to love others, to serve others, to care for others. And you say, I don't care about voting. I'm not going to do it. Okay. I'm totally going to talk to you first and foremost about why you should care about Jesus. Well, let's say you do care about Jesus. Let's say you do as you should Hold his word, not in idolatry, but as being God-breathed. You should vote. Ultimately, though, while voting does matter, the greatest welfare is to seek the advancement of the kingdom of God and to share the gospel. One of the things, I was walking through a neighborhood right around here uh, with a buddy of mine, and we're walking down the street, and you know how everyone has like political signs out and all that, which is great. I'm not even opposed to that, right? They got all these political signs out, and some of these men, they're like applying creativity. Like when God says, whatever you do, work heartily is for the Lord. Like they are going to work heartily on making sure they have the right political signs, the placement, the size of them. Like these things are massive. Some of them, they even bring home like their own individual creativity, right? It, it was impressive to a degree. But I walked down, and here's how I found myself. I found myself thinking, oh, I agree with them. Disagree with them. I agree with them. I disagree with them. And then that, that kind of builds into a sense of, I would hang out with them. I don't know if I would want to hang out with them. I would hang out with them. I feel like we'd probably fight, but we could just not talk about it. It, it like builds into that. Don't worry, you do the same thing. Here's how Jesus Christ, and I know it's just a simple thing. Here's how he would walk down the street. Does he have stances? Does he have convictions? Does he have truth that he brought forward, that he literally calls people to be sanctified, to grow, to be more mature in? Absolutely. But he would walk down that street and he wouldn't think friend, foe, friend, foe. He walks down that street and he thinks, I died for them. I died for them. I died for them. I died for them. Seeking the welfare of the city Christian, compels you to vote. But if that is where all hope or despair, all joy or sorrow is found for you, that is tremendously confusing. If on November 4th, you cannot worship in the saving, trusting, providential hand of God who controls the hearts of kings like streams in the hand, that's really confusing. Because however people vote, he died for them. He wants to have a relationship with them. Not Republican, not Democrat, kingdom. That said, let's make it a little more tricky. Let's make it a little more, let's, let's, let's make it a little more tense and anxious in here. Next question that we want to ask is we develop a biblical approach to the 2020 election is this. How should Christians vote? How 
should Christians vote? Now, I'm not going to read from one specific passage. What I'm going to do here is I'm going to pull out just three verses. I promise there's more. I literally had to restrain them because this message, I already run the risk of talking for way too long. Here's three verses demonstrating a principle. Proverbs 14, verse 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Proverbs 29, verse 2. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. There would be one, and we don't have time to read it, but Matthew 5, Jesus' first public sermon, he's going to talk about how believers of him are meant to be salt in the world. There's a restrainment against evil, a preservative of what is good. And then he's going to talk about how Christians, followers of the way, are meant to bring light through their good works, their good deeds, and how they uh, extend good news in his kingdom. You could talk about that. Your vote should elevate light, should elevate righteousness. It should fight the darkness. 1 Corinthians 13, 6, many of you, you perhaps had this verse read at your weddings. It's not most specifically about weddings. It's just about Christian love. That said, it's, it's still a nice wedding verse. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6. It is what, is what you'll read, but the word there in context, that subject is love. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So as we answer this question, how should a Christian vote, your Bible is emphatically clear. To the best of our ability, we vote to elevate righteousness and diminish wickedness. Your vote to the best of your ability, is to elevate righteousness and diminish wickedness. So how do we do it? First thing that you got to do is you got to learn. Right? This is a humble thing, and I don't mean learn as in you just uh, turn on news talk radio or you find primetime TV of your favorite news station in the evening. You have to learn what God's Word says about the policies that people are discussing in political debates and or just screaming and yelling at each other over The second thing you have to learn is not just what does God's word say about these policies. Where do candidates stand? What do they espouse? And then what has a voting record demonstrated? What have actions demonstrated? You need to understand those two things. That's just a practical reality of how you want to exalt righteousness and diminish wickedness. For the sake of shepherding, here's what I want to do, though. I want to share with you guys a very simplified overview. This was something I wish someone had granted to me years ago as I began considering a Christian worldview and political engagement. I want to share with you a simple overview of policies and where I feel they land in Scripture. For many of you, this is going to be what you call too much detail. For some of you, you're going to want far more detail. But why am I doing it? Where you land on these policies matter. Ideas have consequences. Truth drives ideas. But what if there's freedom? What if there's flexibility? What I want to do is I'm going to give an overview of three categories that I've created. I bet there's more than these three categories. I bet there's better language than these three categories. I just think these are a helpful starting block. 
I'm going to give a cat, a, a, an overview of three categories where policies fit. And here's what I mean. The first category, it's going to be policies where God's word guides us. There's a statement, if you've been at the Springs for some time, we've said repeatedly, we are going to be firm where God's word is firm and flexible where it is flexible. We have a tremendous opportunity to do that right now. The reason we're doing this, guys, is because when you talk about politics, it's so quick to one, people not know what they're talking about, and two, it just devolves into amazing dissension really quickly. There's a reason why many of you, you can't even go home this coming Thanksgiving and address politics or the outcome of the election because it'll ruin Thanksgiving dinner. You have friends you won't bring it up with and then you go back and you talk to your spouse or your roommate and your friend and you fume about them behind their back. Do you do that over topics where God's word is explicitly firm? Do you do that over topics where God's word is flexible? These are areas where God's word guides you. The second category we're gonna talk about is areas where God's word tells you. Here's what I mean by that. It's going to tell you why God cares, why his word is firm. But there's flexibility in the how. There really can be. And then the third category we're gonna talk about as we go from guides to tells, we're going to commands. Commands is places where God's word not only tells you why he cares, but he tells you how that is meant to be carried out. And we're going to quickly go through policies. Here's a disclaimer again. It's not an exhaustive list. Another disclaimer, I'm not going to make a reference to where all the passages are for these, mostly for the sake of time. And secondly, I want you to go do the research. And the third is we talk about every one of these policies. Please don't err in two ways. Don't err in thinking just because there can be a flexibility that it is not absolutely guided by the wisdom of God. Not all ideas are created equal. Wisdom of God pertains to everything on this list. That's the first way some of you might err. The second way is you'll think that because I put it on a list, I must not really care. No. But what is my job? I'm going to shepherd you on, hey, here's where it's clear. Here's where it's firm. Christian, don't you ever make firm what culture wants to make flexible. And then, hey, church, stop dying on the hill where there's some freedom so you can win the right to have a conversation with somebody. Such an exciting day. Such a great day. Loving this. First category, welcome to the springs. First category, guides. Here's my summary. While these topics must be guided by biblical wisdom. God's word's full of it. There is flexibility in what to vote for, and there is flexibility in how best that vote should be carried out or executed. Whew. First topic, the economy. High taxes or low taxes? Pay them, says that, but flexible. Tariffs or no tariffs, trade war with China or no China? Flexible. Does God's word guide it? Yes. Healthcare policy, should it be private? We should dismantle Obamacare. Let's go straight public. Let's make the whole thing there. Maybe a hybrid? God's word guides this. But there's a flexibility in how that can be carried out. When I say flexibility, here's what I mean. 
one policy over another is not explicit sin or explicit righteousness. Does that mean these topics don't matter? Nope. Foreign policy, should the USA be an interventionist country or should we get out of all things foreign and just come and take care of things at home? God's word guides. Military defense, should we continue to invest heavily in military or should you pull that back? Should you give that to other places? God's word guides it, but there's a flexibility, church. Am I saying you can't be passionate about it? No. Am I saying that some of you aren't upset at me right now even I'm talking about it like this? No. But I'm saying you cannot chapter in verse righteousness or sin for this. I've tried. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Let's keep going. Education reform. Free college. Make them pay. I had to pay, so y'all should have to pay. I, actually, that's totally unfair. I was a trust fund baby. I, sh I should be removed, right? Education reform, school voucher versus no school voucher, charter schools, no charter schools. COVID-19, more lockdowns, less lockdowns. These businesses are essential. These businesses are not essential. You can have a total talk about is it constitutional. But when you look at your Bible in the flourishing of the righteousness of the saints, you're not going to chapter and verse that. Who? Police. There's an explicit command for the government's function. You can find this in multiple places. Most specifically, you'll find Romans 13. The government as an institution exists for the exalting of the righteous and the punishment of the evildoer. The police act as an extension of that in a local context. Your Bible is clear on that. Do the police require more funding for perhaps better training more staff? Or should you take that funding? Should they not be militarized? Should it go towards other welfare, welfare systems? You can have a discussion there. You can have a discussion where God's word guides. Pack the court. I'll give you an answer even though somebody won't. Seriously, that was funny. Like there's a can't, whatever. Pack the court. Do you add more justices and essentially make the Supreme Court another legislative branch, a political institution, or do you keep it just as is? Hey, guys, God's word's going to guide you. But there's flexibility here. You can't chapter and verse one of sin or righteousness. Ooh, ooh. Okay, some of you, the exit will be there. You're welcome to exit right after this. Socialism versus capitalism. God's word has a tremendous amount of guidance. I have a strong stance. I can't chapter and verse. One is righteous. One is sin. The church of Jesus Christ has flourished under the midst of the oppression of all kinds of governments. Do I think it matters which direction we go? Yes. Hear me at home, people who are watching this. I think it matters. But it's a topic of guidance. Do you see this? We are framing a policy discussion to where right now, you know language you could use with someone if you, if you talked about this topic, right? It's three words. It's like we've forgotten them in the English language and Christians are going to redeem them and bring them back. They're these three words. Respectfully, I disagree. Would you like to go eat tacos? See what I did there? See what I did? I allowed there to be grace and areas of flexibility. 
church, you're caught in the midst of a system that has no allowance for grace. You are either all one or all the other. Tim Keller, he's a former pastor or theologian still presently out of New York City. He wrote a a story in the New York Times. It was titled, Where Do Evangelical Christians Find Themselves in the Middle of a Two-Party System? He said they don't. I'm not saying one represents that group more than the other, but what I'm saying is, does one of those fully represent God's divine plan? No. Second category, we're going from where be flexible where it's flexible to this next one. We're going to kind of nuance it. You have to be firm because God's word is firm in what matters to him, but his word puts forward flexibility in how that's carried out. The second category of tells, God's word is firm in what should matter to Christians. But there's flexibility in how best to carry it out. First one, the environment. The environment. Everyone's terrified, I'm going to say, global warming. Should we all have electric cars by 2035, which I think is a state law now in California? Right? Or? Hey, are fossil fuels an aspect of common grace that have been given to mankind? You can discuss the how. Here's what you cannot discuss. Since the beginning of Genesis 1, mankind has been put as a manager and a steward over God's creation. You are meant to care. How do you steward it? For what benefit? To what goal? You can talk about that. You can have discussion over that. But you can't say it doesn't matter. Christians can't say that. The second one Immigration, immigration, God's word is firm in why this matters, but he's flexible in how it's carried out. Here's where it's firm. You can absolutely, biblically, you see this principle all throughout, you can have sovereign borders, and a border is not racist. But here's what's also true. The laws of the land are meant to reflect the compassion and the heart of God. You see that exemplified through Israel. God has always called for, demanded, and pleaded for compassion on the immigrant. If you were with us two weeks ago, Jesus' birth, right after that, he becomes an immigrant as he has to flee to Egypt. You can build walls, but God also cares about bridges. Do you see why this topic matters to God? You can't just have one stance and then forsake it. You have to lean in to a discussion. And here's where you're going to find yourself. It's like all or nothing. Refuse to allow people to do that to you, church. Poverty. Poverty. Christians are absolutely commanded to care for the poor. The individual Christian, the institution of the church, commanded Now, the government, in their divine role, they are meant to elevate righteousness and punish wickedness. Is there an aspect of how that could come over? What would it look like for the government to play a role? You can have a discussion about that. Wisdom guides it. I think you've got to be really thoughtful as you do it. But there's a flexibility. There's a freedom. But you can't not care. Israel, this is exciting. Israel, Genesis 12, God's word says, those who bless Israel, I will honor. The United States, I'm putting before you, is blessed by being an ally of Israel. What does it look like, though, to be an ally of Israel? How does that operate? How should we do that? How should it represent? You can have that discussion. 
but God's word is clear on if you should care. Prison reform, he really cares about prisoners, orphans, widows. There's a lot of verses. You can check it out. We are called to care for the prisoner. How do you do that? Do you get rid of mandatory minimums? What does the 13th Amendment really represent? How does that come and carry out? Should we create transitional programs? How do we bring the gospel into jails, prisons? What does it look like? Capital punishment? Not capital punishment. God's word? Ooh, I really want to talk to that one. I don't have enough time. Do you see, though, how the why you have to care, but how you can have a discussion about that? Freedom of speech, freedom of religion. This one, it might confuse some of you because it's confusing to me. I'm putting it on the, the, the lip between God's word guides, tells. That's the category we're in now. And then in a minute, we're going to go to commands. You and I are never promised the reality of freedom of speech from a government society in our Bible. You and I are never promised freedom of religion from a government institution. Here's what actually your Bible most often exemplifies. Being faithful with preaching, even when you don't have that. Much of faithfulness, in particular in the New Testament, is people proclaiming the good news of Jesus and being thrown in jail for it, beaten, killed, martyred. So here's what I'm telling you, church. No matter what happens and how you vote, you be ready. Don't miss that. Faithfulness always comes with a cost, and it's worth it. But here's the truth. Those are privileges and rights that we exercise in, and in many ways, I would say, are under attack presently. Well, I cannot chapter and verse why this matters. It is a huge blessing, though, to the institution of preaching. But here's the thing. If it's taken away, do I think the church will still preach, and maybe that message even gets out farther and faster? Yeah, I could see it going both ways. For example, though, in Nevada right now, 50% of a casino can gather but a church body can't have more than 50 people. I'm going to tell you that's a violation of freedom of religion. In California, you can protest political ideologies in person, but you cannot gather in person for a Sunday worship, regardless if it's Christian or not. Governor Abbott, in July here, he passed the college free speech bill saying that people had to allow and give permission to free speech of students and organizations that some felt what those organizations or what those students were espousing was hate speech. I absolutely believe in the direction of our culture and our world, a Christian ethic, a Christian morality, calling to a stance of truth, inconsiderate, unkind, those not willing to engage over the topic. We'll call Christians bigots, racists, homophobic, transphobic, whatever phobic. That is an aspect of free speech. These are places where God's word tells you why it matters to him. But is there a freedom in how it's carried out? Y'all tracking with me right now? You tracking with me? Some of y'all are like falling asleep, stressed out. I should not have brought my neighbor. I get it. We're all there. I feel it. Third category commands. We're going down this filter. You track with me? Guides, tells, commands. This is where we are going, where God's word is firm in what should matter to Christians, and his word is firm in how best to carry it out. 
What that means is for the Christian, your conviction or your opinion, and I mean this with all kindness, doesn't matter. Thus saith the Lord. You pass on what he said. First topic, racism. Racism in all forms is explicitly, inexcusably offensive to God. If you have problems, if your kid brings home, right, a boyfriend or a girlfriend of a different ethnicity, I rebuke you. Inexcusable. Everyone has been made in the image of God. When you think about the reality of our culture, there's discussions about historic injustice and what does it mean today. I'm great if we can have those discussions. But we are also creating a new form of racism I would put behind some of this. Where the goal has been equality and we're beginning to miss that. But church, why and how God is fundamentally opposed? He's fundamentally opposed. I know, it's intense. Stay with me. Sexuality. Sexuality. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a statement and then stay with me. Uh, God has defined marriage between a man and a woman. It's clear. Do not make complicated what God has made clear. It is not loving. It is not kind. Now let me say this. If you're here and you identify as gay, lesbian, if you're here and you sit confused in a sexual orientation, if you're here and you are a parent and you have a young one asking you questions and you sit at a dinner table and you don't know how to answer, here's what is true. You can represent God's truth while never forsaking compassion. The church should be the most loving place on the earth. If people are going to define love by you not only welcome but you give affirmation, okay, that will not be the definition according to God's word or the reality of the springs, but we will be a place where if you want to come and you want to talk and you want to gather, we will love, we will care for you, we will shepherd. And yes, we may disagree, but I imagine we're going to disagree on a lot of stuff. So I'd still love to go get tacos. You can be clear and you can be loving. You can be gracious and not be a homophobic bigot. When you engage and you represent the truth of God, you better represent it the way Jesus Christ would. And Jesus loved the least of these people just like me, just like you. And don't you dare make an issue more about their sin than you deal with yours. That's why the church people won't come. Why kids turn to YouTube for pastoral advice why young adults don't consider marriage because it's a broken institution they've seen from generations before. So here's what I tell you. Whoever you are, wherever you are, if you land on that spectrum, there's a God in heaven who loves you. There's dysfunction in your life just like mine. He brings grace, redemption, and forgiveness. But is God's word clear here? Yes. Second one. Third. Gender. Gender. God's word is explicitly clear that there are two genders, male and female. It is never righteous 
to support the pursuit of hormone replacement, um, therapy, gender reassignment, surgery. It's not loving. Why? He says it's not loving. Wait, that means God is restricting aspects that I think will bring me freedom in life. Yeah, it kind of comes with the whole he died for you thing. It's literally a call. He bids you to carry your cross to follow him. But you do not make muddy what God's word has made clear. In a recent town hall presidential discussion, there was language used that is discriminatory. If you don't allow an eight-year-old access to hormone replacement therapy to transition genders or to pursue over time gender reassignment surgery, that is wrong. If you're here and you're wrestling with that, there's confusion. You've perhaps felt like you have never fit in in any instance. And you honestly, in the emotions, you feel like you connect with something. Here's what you know. We'd love to talk to you. You will find grace. You will find love. There is no scarlet letter in the kingdom of God. People make it seem like Christians in the church, you can't do both. You can't have a voice that pleads on behalf of truth and have a voice that pleads on behalf of compassion and love and grace and community and love your neighbor. Refuse to allow people to do that to you. There's a king you represent, force one, life. Your Bible is crystal clear that life begins from the moment of conception. Here's what's true. In America, one in three women have participated in abortion. One in five men have participated, supported, funded. That is a part of your story. We are so glad you're here. There's no shame. But we can proclaim the truth of what God's word says while we love you. While we help you as a female, you as a male, walk through a process of healing and grace. Where if you don't already know forgiveness in Jesus, we find that. If you don't all know, already know the reality of what his word says, we find that. Where, where if you're here and you find yourself in an unplanned pregnancy, but you're broke, the partner has left. You have no social support, uh, connection, or environment that will take care of you. You're in the middle of pursuing a job or a career. And this whole thing is just going to become the anchor that holds you back. We will not shame you. The people of God will love you. We will care for you. If not through you, we will care for that child. But God's word is clear. You care for life in the womb, you care for it all the way to the tomb. You care for all of that. But culture right now is just trying to redefine a few things. And God's word is clear. Do you see as we work from be firm where it's firm and flexible where it's flexible, there's these categories. You might come and say, hey, John, I think that category should be down here or this category should be down there. Okay, we, we could have that discussion. But here's how you have to do it. You have to do it in accordance with God's word. Christian, this is how you are to vote. You remember, you gotta go learn. But what if I can't find a party that fully represents me? What if I can't find a party that, that really comes down? And when I think about that, man, really comes with a sense of compassion and justice and care for the poor and consideration of the immigrant as well as elevating the reality of morality in life where it begins. What if I find myself stuck in between? Learn what God says. Learn what the candidate says. Pray and do your best. Christians have always voted the lesser of two evils. 
until Jesus runs, that will always be true. Some of y'all don't get it. He was, he was sinless. It's a thing. Don't worry about it. Come back next week. We unpack it all. Christians have always voted for the lesser of two platforms. This election is no different. But, but what if I like the policies and the platform of one party, or at least some, if not most, but I have a really hard time with the person? I'm sure no one here has that problem. <laughs> I'm good. Nah, uh, I'm going to put up my email at the end of this, but it's going to be a fake email. Don't, don't email me. <laughs> I got a family. I don't have enough time. Uh, no, I'll talk to you after, whatever. Here's what I would tell you, right? Because right there, you're talking about person and policy. That's where we're going now. Personal character matters. Matters. Character has always mattered. The conduct of the character of, excuse me, of the candidate matters. Why? It brings influence to so many things, to culture. Hey, this is true, local, state, national. Policy and platform matters. It creates law. It legislates morality. All law is moral, whether it be tax codes, speed limits, stop laws, what you can or cannot say as you pledge allegiance to the flag. It's all moral law. So while both matter, here's what I'm putting forward. I'm putting forward that policy and platform outweighs person. I'll tell you why. I think policy and platform outweighs person. Here's why. An unrighteous, foolish person in office, get ready to email me, influences people. For example, and this is just a totally random example, a seemingly bullying, defensive, combative, Twitter-committed candidate, random example, they absolutely influence people and impact culture. It's true. Unrighteous, foolish policies, they do not just influence. They literally demand obedience. I have a volitional choice whether or not I want to allow someone's influence to influence me. I either have the choice to break the law or obey the law. It's different. One compels obedience, one brings influence. A few examples of how policies would impact that. Tax dollars, right, that deny the reality of life in the womb. Tax dollars, you will not have the ability to not allow your taxes go towards the funding of public abortions, the funding of gender reassignment. That's a policy reality. It, is a, it can become, this happened in New York, it was taken away, but it's been proposed illegal for accredited faith counselors to discourage same-sex interaction, even with individuals that because of their religious conviction are asking for help with that. That's compelled obedience. It would make it illegal. In the state of California, we've already referenced, you can protest in person but not attend Sunday services. Some folks have asked me, hey, if you, if you and if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you are a church in California, would we be gathering? The institution in the state does not have the right to come and tell the church of God they are not an essential service. In righteous, gracious, civil disobedience, there is a respect towards the state, the consideration of pandemic, but they cannot stop the church of God. 
policies matter. Simple one, you can't deny the making of a wedding cake if you have a difference in personal conviction. One brings influence, the other compels obedience. Policies that a candidate passes, they don't just influence, they are law. It's because of that I put forward that policy outweighs the person. You can likely tell, as an individual, which way I lean this election. I'm fine with that. But here's what I would tell you. As you as an individual, if you are like me and you hold up that policy outweighs person, or even if your response is, you can't even trust the media because when you turn it on, it's just malignment anyways, whatever. If you are going to uphold righteous policy, you better uphold righteous candidates, righteous politicians. Here's what I mean by that. It is confusing when believers in Jesus Christ overlook the failings of the person, overlook the failings of a candidate for the greater sense of policy, and they don't own that. What I'm saying there is while I seek to uphold the reality that in 2016, 630,000 abortions were performed, and I uphold that righteous law, I will absolutely call for a sense of righteousness in the political leaders and how they engage with one another, they engage with culture, they engage with journalists. You can do both, church. Refuse to make it either or. You are meant to do that in your own life, not only in righteous action, but in righteous interpersonal. You can do both. But John... What if I'm honest and then my candidate loses? The direction of the United States, man. What if we go to civil war? They'll restrict free speech. This is my favorite. When they come and they say, what if they take away the church's 5013C status? And when people give, they can't get a tax deduction, so people will stop giving. If that's the reason you give, we have a huge discipleship issue. Here's what I would tell you. Our trust is in our God. In Christ alone, our hope is found. Here in the power of Christ, I stand. It's not in mortal princes. God's church has existed through far worse than whatever may come. We must be faithful. What should you do on November 4th, no matter the outcome? Worship. What if your candidate loses worship? How do you vote? You be firm where it's firm and it's flexible where it's flexible. There are parties, and honestly, guys, this is the part that is upsets folks. Particularly as you get down to firmness of some things, there's a party that is explicitly going another direction on many of the aspects where God's word is clearly firm. You don't get to change that. But what if you find yourself, though, in a situation where though you're opposed to the policies, the person, you in good conscience, you just can't overcome it, and and you want to perhaps abstain or step out, or you have, before God, you are 100% convinced, you are ready to give an account, and you don't know what God would have you do, and you say, I can't. I will give you grace. I'll give you grace. How should we vote? You elevate righteousness 
you diminish wickedness to the best of your ability. You fear God knowing this matters. You recognize God understands the complexity of culture and where this is going to go, and it's going to take thoughtful Christians to continue going there. And then we go. And no matter what happens, election 2020, we are faithful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with truth. Love walks down the streets, and it sees he died for them. He died for them. He died for them. He died for them. And it loves it never neglects truth, but it loves. That's what I want to do. That's what I'm pleading we would do. Pray with me. Thank you all for staying five minutes long. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the, the privilege of how we come and we talk about your word. Would you guide your people and how you would have us serve and care and vote? Lord, I pray that your grace, it would just rain on this, that there would be love and there'd be hope. We need your help. It's in your name we pray. Amen.